So here we are. Can everyone in the back hear me? So here we are, 48 hours into our retreat. And having survived this long, you get to have a, a, a moment of laughter. A cartoon from the New Yorker in which there's this large, large elephant uh, lying on the analyst couch. And the analyst is sitting there busily taking notes and the elephant has this very forlorn look on his face. And he says, I'm right there in the room, and no one ever acknowledges me. <laughs> so it is with the body. It's the elephant in the room that is so often not acknowledged, or not acknowledged in its fullness as experience, as an opportunity for learning and growing, and as a means for freedom. So on this retreat of awakening in the body, we are coming to explore the elephant in the room. And in doing so, we are part of the very original tradition of the Buddha. This is various quotes from the Buddha. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya, this uh, large book of the middle-length discourses, which is filled with references to the body. If the body is not mastered, the mind cannot be mastered. If the body is mastered, mind is mastered. And by that, the, the implication is by meditation. So to read it again, inserting that, if the body is not mastered by meditation, the mind cannot be mastered. If the body is mastered, mind is mastered. Big statement. And we'll see in the unfolding of our development of mindfulness practice, the body plays a key role in learning to understand the mind and gain elements of freedom in relation to the mind. There's one thing, monks, that cultivated and regularly practiced leads to a deep sense of urgency, to the supreme peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of right vision and knowledge, to happiness here and now, to realizing deliverance by wisdom and the fruition of holiness. It is mindfulness of the body. Pretty big elephant, huh? <laughs> and this is from Ajahn Mun. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Notice that. In your investigation of the world, the world, everything that's composed, all, all around you, your own sense of identity, all of that is the world. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. So that's not a negative statement about you, you'll lose all interest in the world or the, there will be a distastefulness to the world. In staying with the body, the wonders of the world will be revealed. Again, quite a statement. And in the Buddha's own life, 
he discovered at, at the very prime of his life that the world he was living as a prince, a small principality probably, but nonetheless a prince, that there was a kind of catch-22 to it, that his wife and his new baby would die, and he would die, and that everything he valued would die, that it would get old, sick, and die, and that this idea of getting some sort of uh, eternal pleasure was an illusion. And it was this body, seeing this through the body, that was his first awakening. The three heavenly messengers all had to do with the body. And then he left his world, his regular world, and uh, uh, learned to uh, practice meditation with the two of the best teachers, maybe the best teachers of his time, it's said. And then he became an ascetic in which he tried to uh, rid himself of any affiliation with the body, to ignore the elephant in the room, as it were. And he, uh, it, it is said in the text, became so emaciated that you could see his backbone. And there are some statues, we have actually have one here on the grounds, of the emaciated Buddha. We don't see those too often. But that was a stage he was going through, and he discovered that that was not the right path. This rejection of the body at that level was a kind of nihilism, and it was not the right way. And it was through the body then that he discovered the middle way that led to his enlightenment, his full understanding, and all the teachings that have been passed down to us. So in awakening in the body, we are part of the classic tradition of the Buddha's teaching. And we will see that this shows up in uh, more than one way as we go through the evening. In addition to awakening in the body, this year we have this theme, which you've already heard endlessly, and you're going to hear a lot more of it till you're tired of it probably, and that is this idea of relaxation. And particularly relaxation in the body that then leads to relaxation in the mind. Using the body to relax the body, using relaxing the body to relax the mind. Those of you who have been on other retreats with me or come to my Sunday evening group know that I often describe this relaxation as softening into the experience. So for instance, on the concentration retreat that we teach each year, we teach mindfulness as achieved through relaxed attention. So to pay attention, but to pay attention in a relaxed way. Not to be tight, but to be soft, to be in neutral about it. And then through relaxed attention, you soften into the moment. What Julie was referring to last night and today is finding a ground or a resting place for the mind. And it's a literal resting place. It's not figurative, it's literal, this resting place. And as again, as she was saying, just as the body is resting on the earth, and stop for a moment, 
and ask yourself, is this true? Is the body resting on earth? So do a little two-part question. Do you have to hold the body down? Say it out loud. Okay. I'm waiting for someone one of these days to say, yes, I do. Because <laughs> actually, uh, some of us do have this tendency to not trust as though we're not going to float away. And so there is a kind of tension of holding it down that's unnecessary and wonderful to discover because when you let loose of that, very nice feeling. And so the second question, do you have to resist as though the earth were going to swallow you up right this moment? No. And again, for some of us at some times, we actually do hover as though the earth were going to swallow us up. Both the, the, the uh, hovering and, and, the, and the clinging as though we're going to float away, both of these uh, manifestations come when our emotions are of a certain uh, uh, frequency. And so that is one of the manifestations that can happen, is this kind of, of clinging to the earth or this kind of resisting. And that's, those are both just reactivities of the mind manifested in the body. But we can each see, even if we have some of that characteristic in us, that the pelvis is just resting on earth. So again, close your eyes for a moment and just feel that. Feel the bottom of the pelvis. Feel your sit bones. Breathe all the way down, even with your imagination. That it is really resting, just as a book would rest on a table. And let that go and open your eyes. So it's genuinely true. We know this for ourselves, that the body will just rest on the earth. Attention will, arrest on a, will rest on an object. As we learn to direct attention, it will rest on the object of the breath, which is a pretty neutral object. And then in time with practice, we can direct it to rest on any object that we uh, wish. And by resting on, that is that the attention on it is, a, uh, is attention that is at rest. It's not grabbing hold of, nor is it hovering away from the object. It's just there with the object that's arising in the mind. And this you'll probably have to take my word for for now, many of you. It has the same felt sense quality as you just felt in that pelvis. There is a felt sense of the mind resting. That can be accessed, and when you access it, then it is, it, there's this sense of well-being or the spaciousness that we've been talking about that arises spontaneously with that sense. So these are our themes, awakening in the body and this uh, uh, cultivation of relaxation. This is a little subtle, this little hint I'm going to give, but many of you have had a lot of practice. So this is aimed primarily for you. If this doesn't make any sense to you, let it go. In practicing in this way, we are cultivating receptivity. 
So there is, a, there is an opening of receptivity that is a space or an attitude or an orientation to the moment. It's a receptive orientation. It's a receptive attitude. And then when we make contact with the moment of the body awareness, it is a receiving. So from this receptivity, there arises this receiving. We're aware of the back. We're aware of the hands. We're aware of restlessness in the body. We're aware of anger in the body. There's, there is this receiving, and that is the moment of the mindfulness, that receiving. But it is preceded by this receptivity. And in part, we're training that receptivity. And we're cultivating a habitual attitude of being receptive to the moment. And it's different than getting ahead or worrying about the past. It's like what's true right now is an open field inquiry. We're dropping in to this moment. It's, a, it's, a, it's an inquiry that's a field of, of availability. And again, receptivity is palpable. It's palpable. It's not a concept. It's palpable. You know, and each of you know this because you know when you're receptive to being touched. You know when you're receptive to, uh, to uh, hearing a Dharma talk. You know when you're receptive to sleep. You, there's, a, there's an availability that, that you can feel. You can become more and more skilled in being receptive. So there is receptivity, then there is receiving. And then there is the received. This is the Indian way of uh, teaching. They, they break things down to these kind of three parts. And uh, I've, for these last eight years, been studying with an Indian teacher. And I found myself picking up this uh, style of perceiving and learning and, and cultivating. And so knowing the received is that at that point, you know this moment is like this. So you have the experience, and then you know it. So the knowing of your experience starts with the receptivity. And so there is this kind of narrowing into the moment, and then it opens back up into the known. Where we get a little confused in our Western minds is that when we know the moment, we know the restlessness, instead of opening back up, we tend to grab hold of it. We don't trust that the knowing of it is enough. So we lose that receptivity aspect. So we lose that orientation, that, that, uh, that field of experience. For those of you who've had a lot of experience practicing, you can sort of notice this for yourself in these next few days. So how do we do this? How do we awaken in the body? How do we do it? What are you feeling right now in the body? Let's, I'm just going to point some fingers. What are you feeling in your body right now? Itchy. Itchy, thank you. And you? Heavy on this chair. Heavy? Uh, I'm pretty centered. My shoulders are tense. Centered, tense shoulders there. Flat. Flat? Flat, sir. Sore. Sore. Pressure on my back. Pressure on your back. 
pressure on your back? A lot of pressure on the back, miss. Wow, a lot of pressure on the back. What are you feeling? No, right behind. Pardon me? Comfortable. So that uh, comfortable is a feeling. It's a definite feeling. We can have an attitude about that, like, oh, we like comfortable, but comfortable is a feeling. There's a spaciousness to it. And then the chair behind her. Heaviness. So, knowing what's going on in this moment through knowing the body. You can listen to these words and not desert your body. I can speak these words and not desert my body. I would suggest to you that in your interactions, whether it's listening, speaking back and forth, uh, in an interchange, or you presenting, that life will be richer and you will be more clear if you maintain the body awareness as you're speaking or listening or feeling or dancing or uh, uh, figuring something out that in this moment there is always the body to be tuned into. Again, it doesn't have to be front and center. It can be resting back, but there's a sense of it there and there's a kind of knowing. Uh, I will list at the uh, end here some of the benefits of this kind of staying present in the body. So how do we do this? We use this tool of sati, or mindfulness. Sati, mindfulness. It is mindfulness, I would suggest to you, that will allow you to cultivate this sense of relaxation. First of all, it is mindfulness that allows you to remember Oh yeah, I'm going to stay in tune with the body. Oh, I'm supposed to be relaxing. I want to, I want to explore this field of relaxing. It's mindfulness that remembers that. It knows. And so we cultivate mindfulness moment to moment. And it's a, it's a reinforcing loop. Feeling the body reminds us to be mindful of the body and feeling the body, uh, whatever's going on in the body, reminds us to, la- to, to relax into it. And as we relax into it and we're more mindful of it, we remember more. And so it, it's a, a positive or a upward spiraling or upward and downward, however you visualize these things, that allows you a kind of empowerment. So sati, mindfulness. In the, uh, the Buddha's teaching, he made many different uh, references to what mindfulness is like. And those of you who are with experience, you may not have heard these in terms of the context of relaxing, but they're very much there. So for instance, one of his analogies is that mindfulness is like a cow herder after the crops have been brought in. So before the crops have been brought in, he, he has to watch out because the cows are going to eat, eat the crops. Likewise, Without mindfulness, you know, your mind can go into all of these, you know, dark places that, you know, these bad neighborhoods that you shouldn't be going by yourself, right? <laughs> so, so, so it is. So when there's mindfulness, like the, the, like the, 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 the cow herder who can relax, 
when our mindfulness is present, we can relax. Another uh, analogy he used, or metaphor, was uh, as though it were like climbing an elevated platform. So there's a kind of perspective. You're not, you can see around what's happening. You're not caught, you're not swept up in what's happening. And then another one is like taming a wild elephant. And then another one is uh, like a, f a farmer plowing a field in preparation for the planting of the crops. So we plow the field with mindfulness in order to have insight as our crop. See, we can't practice insight. Insight comes when it comes. It, it's, uh, it's, uh, to switch analogies for a moment, it's like uh, bearing fruit. The fruit ripens and falls when it ripens and falls. But we can create the conditions in which insight can grow. Thus the farmer plowing his field. And in plowing the field, there's a kind of relaxation because there's a harmony. We are cultivating what we wish to be cultivating. So we can relax. Now notice none of this has been about content. So you might be having terrible thoughts that are causing lots of storms in your body. That's okay. We can be mindful of that. And being mindful, we can relax around it. It's bad enough to be having one of those hindrance attacks when the body's all torn up by our emotions. But to get all uh, doubly caught up in it by our tension around it would be even worse. But oh no, being caught in an anger storm and having my belly on fire or my jaw tight is like this. So we relax into or relax, relax around or soften into an experience. Uh, for a number of years till I... Uh, in various ways, destroyed both of my knees, I practiced Aikido. And in Aikido, you absolutely have to stay aware of the body. And you have to stay aware of the body energetically because you've got this energy coming at you and the whole uh, secret of Aikido is blending with the energy. So you, you blend with this other person's energy and so instead of taking it as an attack that you're going to attack back, you blend with the energy and redirect the energy. What allows that to work is a neutrality. So there's not a fixed position. You're willing to flow with the energy. Mindfulness is like that. It's neutral. It's neutral. It's not sitting in a rigidity of judgment. It's not clinging to some concept about how things are. It's just presence. And that energy of whatever arises in the body and then through the body, feeling the emotions, we blend with it. We're, oh, so it's like this, whoa. So when, when I when I'm, uh, feel as though someone's disrespected me, I'm like this. Does it matter whether or not they really disrespected you? Not so much. It's seeing, oh, if I perceive it this way, my body gets tense. Oh, I, if I'm not sure of myself in a meeting, oh, I get tense. Or with my significant other, I get tense. That tenseness is dukkha. It's suffering. But if I'm mindful, I go, oh, I'm just feeling insecure here. And it's unpleasant, but it doesn't, uh, what we call papanchaize, it doesn't spread, it doesn't explode into this whole storyline in which, you're, which you misconstrue your significant other's 
words or actions, or you defeat yourself in the meeting before you start because your, your insecurity is broadcast to everyone in the room. And we see all of this. We learn how to do all of these kinds of skillful being with the body here in meditation uh, on, in this retreat because it's a safe place to practice. So we can let anything arise. And we're cultivating this neutrality, this receptivity of the neutrality, which then allows us to receive our experience such that we can investigate it. And then we have this knowing of the experience that comes from having received it. See how it starts to work. In the Buddha's great teaching of meditation, of mindfulness meditation, is again, it's in other discourses too, but it's in the Majjhima Nikaya, and it's the sutta, the particular sutta is called the Satipatthana Sutta. And uh, the sati being the mindfulness, and then the, 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 the satipatthana, the, other, the root word is upatana, and it means a kind of presence. It, it's a kind of, it, it can be translated as standing by, or attending to, or being with. It, it, is, it suggests in all of its usage, and the same in Sanskrit, the sense of presence, that you have presence. Mindfulness yields a kind of presence. When you've been with teachers or uh, various uh, senior students in this field or people in other areas that have their own kind of mindfulness, you feel a presence from them, with them. And it feels good because you sort of trust it in a certain way because there's a presence. Somebody's home. And if, if you believe in their good attentions, then you believe they're going to take care of you you can trust them because they will be aware of, of their emotions and not be swept away. They'll be aware of what's fair and will act fairly. So there's this kind of presence. So each of us are developing a presence. That presence transforms such that we then have the presence of the elephant. So instead of the elephant being denied, we're manifesting as the elephant. And this is, again, this quite strong empowerment. One of the images of mindfulness is the, the, uh, the, the part of the elephant that is likened to mindfulness, which is the neck of the elephant. So a, an elephant doesn't turn around like that. It turns its whole body to see something. So it was said of the Buddha that the Buddha never looked around like that. He turned his full attention to what? he was contemplating. And so with our mindfulness, we learn how to turn full attention. So when I ask you what's your body feeling, in that moment, you turn your full attention to the body. And then as you develop this field of receptivity, the, the feeling of the body is in that field. You're aware of the body. So what's arising in the body is received in the, in the, the mindfulness and it's known. So what do we contemplate with our sati, with our mindfulness? The Buddha in the Satipatthana divided all of our experience into these four large categories. And you could do this, I could do this, any of us could say, okay, what is my range of experience? I'm going to divide it up in some way. 
he divided it up in a very interesting way. He started with the body. And in fact, he gives more different instructions on how to contemplate the body than he does anything else. So he divides it into four uh, areas, uh, sometimes uh, uh, called foundations, or, uh, but it also could be understood as four pastures going back to the cow herder. And remember that in dividing up our experience in ways that we can contemplate it, we're creating this safety where we can relax because we're attending. So first he starts with the body and our learning how to attend to the body. And he gives us these six different ways of doing it, of which awareness of the breath is one, the body moving and uh, in, in, uh, various activities of movement is another, the body standing, sitting, lying down, and walking is another, the parts of the body, and then the four elements that uh, Julie was referring to and that you will hear uh, further uh, information about is another, these four elements of the body, seeing the body in this kind of elementary way, which relates so strongly to sensations, which we're uh, encouraging you to notice the body as sensation rather than as concept so much in this retreat. So all of these different ways of being mindful of the body, to awaken to this moment in the body, to awaken to when there is suffering and not suffering in the body, to awaken to what's true and not true in this realm of existence, to awaken to what's possible for you in this moment in terms of freedom all through the body. The second way that he divided our whole uh, spectrum of experience is around feelings, what's called Vedna. And feelings doesn't mean what we mean in uh, the English use of that word so much. It is this tonality of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral that accompanies every moment of experience. So every body sensation is either pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's not particularly pleasant nor unpleasant. Contemplating the feeling tone in the body teaches us so much about what happens to us because we are in our untrained minds like a puppet uh, dangling from two strings, pleasant and unpleasant. If it's pleasant, we go towards it or we try to hold on to it. If it's unpleasant, we try to avoid it or get rid of it. And we just, we just move like this. We're like those Pavlovian rats in the, in the training cage. It's, it's uh, funny and uh, very humbling to see how true that is. And you can just watch yourself and your experience with the body, how much you actually behave just like that. As we contemplate the body more, we learn that if it's pleasant, it's just pleasant. If it's unpleasant, it's just unpleasant. So we cease to respond to those strings. And that's a level of freedom right there. Then the third way that the Buddha divided the spectrum of our experience was by the mind states we have and the mental activity that's part of that mind states. And the pleasant and unpleasant of those mind states really control us. So, you know, if you get mad at someone, if you get really lustful after something, if you get uncertain about something, if you have some sort of strong aversion, it, boy, that string, the puppets, just, you just dance right along to that if the mind is untrained. But having learned through the body and having, having uh, 
gained more equanimity, we then learn that even with the mind states, just because something's unpleasant in the mind, it does not have to control our life. It doesn't have to ruin our day that someone said something unkind to us. It doesn't have to do us in that we didn't get what we wanted. It's just unpleasant. And if something's pleasant, we don't have to have more and more of it. We can appreciate what we have and have much more freedom. We learn this. We learn this. Of particular use, every emotion you have, whether you believe this or not, and whether or not you can yet detect it, every emotion has some manifestation in the body. It's physical. There's a felt sense to emotion. So that felt sense we've learned through the body, and as then we've learned the pleasant and unpleasant, and then we've learned this emotion, and boy, now we're really practicing. And then the fourth way that the Buddha divided experience up was what he called the dharmas, or the objects of experience. And by objects, he doesn't mean the content. So it's not like, uh, say, that uh, in the lunch line, uh, you take too much food. He, you notice that you've taken too much food, or you didn't get enough food, or whatever, and, and you start having all this experience around it. So in, in this particular foundation, you would notice that's true. And how do you notice? Because the body's already reacting, and there's this feeling of pleasant and unpleasant in the body and so forth. And you're, what, you're not so interested in, well, why did I take too much food, or why didn't I get enough? Why don't they put out more bananas or whatever it is? but rather that the, the state of the mind, the state of the body. So it's, it's, the, it's not your opinions about or the, your soap opera around it, but rather it's the nature of, of not having enough. Not having enough feels like this, or having too much feels like this, and you can feel that in the body. So the sati in these four ways, starting with the body, this is what we're working with, and we're working with it. On this retreat, everything referenced back through the body. We'll give you various instructions and all throughout, but so when we get to talking about emotions, we're going to be asking you to notice the sensations that are associated with emotions. So we never leave the body, just as Ajahn Mum was recommending for us. So... Uh, another understanding in terms of the body is dropped attention or felt sense. In the Buddha's teaching on the Satipatthana, he talks, uh, he, he gives the instruction to be aware of the body in the body. So not up here in the coconut, but feeling the body in the body. Said another way, you're not learning to be aware of the body the way the scanner in the supermarket would be aware of milk, 349. There's no taste of the milk. Is that, would you really want that? Would you really want your life to be like some sort of bar scanner that registers what is without any uh, depth to the experience, any taste of the experience? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And so the Buddha isn't saying that, and sometimes... The way uh, the instruction can be heard, it sounds like we're asking you to be so far removed that you don't have any of the felt sense of it. But no, it's the body in the body. It's the breath in the breath, the breath in the body. It's the felt sense, dropped attention. So 
uh, take your left hand, put it out in front of you, put your right forearm in it. Now, hover a little bit so that you're barely touching, your right forearm is barely touching. So that's one kind of experience. It's tiring and there's not much contact. Now just let it rest. That's dropped attention. That's the felt experience. Now push down really hard. Push down, push down, push down. Uh, really grabbing this moment of experience. It's tiring, huh? In that, there again, there's no relaxation. Now just let it rest. In the felt experience is this relaxedness and let it go. So now, at first, what you will experience when you drop into something is this pushing or hovering a lot, leaning into, pulling away of experience. We all have these tendencies. Uh, I, I have a series of, of physical movements where you can go through them and you actually feel when you lean. Under what level of pressure do you lean into and what level of pressure do you pull back? And all oh, that's quite interesting to explore. But where we're headed, where we're awakening into, is that we can just rest in the experience, the felt sense of resting. And we know it. And we know if we're hovering or we know if we're pushing. And you can watch this in the coming days. Now, again, uh, take your right hand this time. Look at the palm. And so see things. Like uh, uh, I see a lot of lines. I also see my initial M in my palm. <laughs> and then I notice the skin. What are you noticing? And then look at the back side of the hand. Again, you know, I see skin and some wrinkles and some coloring and so forth. And I know as a concept that this is a hand. And I know as a concept what hand does. Now, close your eyes and start to move your fingers and move your hand, turning it one way and the other. Do a little dance with it. Let the hand start to move the elbow and then move the shoulder and let your chest start to respond. And now your pelvis start to respond. You can do this lying down. Just You don't have to stand up for this. And that is the felt sense of hand stop. Our life, our living is in the felt sense, not in the coconuts concepts, not in the coconuts judgments and its comparisons. But oh no, hand feels like this. And it is that, it's that felt sense is what makes hand truly useful. It's because it, it can feel, it can pick up, it can, it can stroke. It can defend, it can uh, uh, feed us, it can create. That's the felt sense. Awakening the body is awakening to that felt sense of life. And learning how to be in that felt, felt sense of life without being caught in greed, hatred, and delusion. But being in the dance of it, fully present to respond, this receptivity, this neutral, safeguarded by sati, by mindfulness. So that is the, um, the, the body as, as a, a, a kind of classic teachings brought down to the 
uh, immediate experience of the felt sense. There's another way to view awakening in the body, and that has to do with the, the body as a, a dynamic perspective, this kind of uh, connecting through time, this, uh, this sense of uh, the carrier, or what I refer to as the storehouse. So feeling the body as a storehouse. You know what your body's like right now. It's the storehouse of all your physical experience. Does anyone doubt that? It's all there. It's also the storehouse of your genetics. And those genetics have interacted with the causes and conditions of your history and they have manifested in some instances and some instances not. Sometimes pleasantly, sometimes very unpleasantly. It's the storehouse. The pleasant and unpleasant we can have, you know, we can have our compassion for, but the, it's impersonal. It's your history just there. It's impersonal. We all have a history. We all have a genetic. We've all had a series of causes and conditions. As we understand that, we get less caught in our story. And as we're less caught in our story, there's less clinging and grasping, and life becomes freer, better, more available to us, no matter how difficult our situation. It works at every point along the spectrum. The body also is the storehouse for our emotional experience. And this is where it gets to be a sticky wicket sometimes in meditation. Because we're sitting here and in the stillness, those emotional uh, energies that are stored start to come up to be known and to be released. There's a kind of purification, a kind of unwinding that happens. Sometimes our body will manifest in a kind of unwinding way, not to always be indulged, by the way, but sometimes. Sometimes there can be this uh, stabbing right behind the shoulder blades or this heat or the pain will move around in various places in our body or there'll be this sense of pressure or we'll suddenly discover we've got a black hole or some, one of those super balls that's somewhere inside us or there's this vacancy somewhere inside us or we can't feel a whole part of our body. We're awakening in the body. It's unwinding. It's releasing. Numbness is a kind of feeling. There's a felt sense. Otherwise, you wouldn't know it was numb. That black hole is there. That uh, it, there, there can be uh, uh, kind of intrusions into the body that actually don't belong to the body. And you may feel some of those release. But they're now there. They're stored there in the body around trauma, physical trauma from our youth, from last week, from five years ago, all sorts of uh, sexual trauma, all sorts of other kinds of emotional trauma. It, that those patterns are there at the cellular level, in my view and backed by science. All of that starts to come up and out in time. So it can be tough on the cushion, and that's okay. Sati protects us. The mindfulness protects us. Sati 
is supported by the loving kindness practice you do every day. It is supported by compassion, this sense of compassion. Wow, this hurts. Oh, I'm sorry, body. This hurts so much. Oh, here's, here's this feeling. What is this feeling? Oh, I'm remembering this thing from 10 years of age. Oh, and again, compassion for that 10-year-old. Oh, it's dukkha. The receptivity to keep the field of receptivity, to actually receive the moment, requires this compassion, this loving kindness. It is said that the Dharma flies because of two wings, the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. And it's those two that allow the movement, that allows you to move into life, to fly into life, to open your heart into life, to have your heart come alive and take flight. We awaken in the body in order to have this experience. So the body is storehouse in this way. The body is also the gateway to liberation. In the Buddha's instructions on awareness of the body, he asks us to notice the body internally and externally. And I will often ask students when they're talking on the phone to become aware of the breath of the person on the phone. And time and again, people come back with all of these amazing things to say. How they were, they were all nervous or they were really irritated with someone and then they started listening to that person's breath and suddenly they had such sympathy for the person. Or suddenly what they were so attached to didn't seem that important. So awakening to the body, your body, and the other person's body. This uh, oneness, this, uh, this uh, uh, compassion for the other, this opening our heart to the other, comes in part through this awareness of the body of the other. Then there is uh, the Buddha's instruction to be aware of the breath arising, the breath passing, of the elements arising and passing, of movement arising and passing, and then arising and passing in ourselves and in other. So everything that we experience arises as an experience. And you know, oh, this is arisen now. And then if we pay even a little bit of attention, we'll see that, oh, it's past. Wow, where did it go? Where is it now? If it's gone, why did it seem so important? Why did I make myself so miserable over it? Why is it at times we even kill over it? What is that when it all disappears? So this arising and passing and arising and passing all at once in ourselves, in our own experience and watching someone else. We, it's funny because uh, it's so easy at times when we're with a child and the child's having a bad moment, you know, and they're crying or they're being very difficult or mean or something. We know that this has arisen and we know it's going to pass. We don't hate the child. We don't get all uh, uh, insecure because the child said something nasty to us or we don't feel inadequate because the child's having its time. And yet, put us with an, another adult and we become so rigid, so solidified, so many concepts, so many judgments, so many stories. We lose the fact that, oh, this person's having this moment and they're going to have another moment. Right now they're irritated. It's being directed at me. 
But is it really about me? No, irritation is like this, and it will pass. And suddenly there's this room, again, to stay available in our hearts, to stay available for what's appropriate in the situation. And the Buddha tells us to watch the pleasant and unpleasant of what's arising and to see the dukkha in it and to see that there can be a sense of peace and spaciousness around it through the mind being centered. In other words, to stay present in this moment just as it is. This moment is arising and passing. This moment is arising and passing. What you felt when I asked you earlier is not there now. There's been a hundred other, a thousand other sensations that have been the predominant sensation since then. We're a stream, again, as Julie was saying, we are a stream of experience, one moment flowing into the next, one moment conditioned by the next. If we rest in that stream, feeling that changing sensation, we have much more choice in our life. We're awakening. We're awakening to our possibility, to our true nature, which is to be able to respond from our deeper values and not simply from our reactivity. We're awakening to our liberation, to our freedom of choice. I, um, uh, my, I study with Ajahn Sumedho. He's my primary teacher right now. And I, uh, for a number of years, have also studied with a, a, a teacher in India. And I was just over there in February in India studying with him. And um, uh, one of the things I study with him is that he has this teaching, uh, the nine bodies, which I've never heard anywhere else that's come from his own meditation experience. And uh, I'm soon going to be ready to start teaching that. He's been long ready for me to start teaching it, but uh, I have not felt as though I understood it for myself deeply enough to be able to teach it, but time's coming now. And so in this last um, trip, uh, uh, we were at his ashram, and he uh, said, uh, tomorrow I want us to go off and meditate in this cave. And I really love to meditate with him. I would do much more of it if he would. Uh, because when he sits and goes into a, a samadhi, I can attune with it and I go right in with him. Really a wonderful feeling. And it's, it's a shared feeling. So, But uh, you get what you get when you work with the teacher. And so I was thrilled that we were going to go someplace else. And he says, it's this cave that's deep and dark, and we're going to sit in this cave and meditate. I was, again, really thrilled. So I very carefully brought various kinds of clothing because I didn't know, was it going to be damp in there? Was it, what was I going to be sitting on, all of this? So we uh, get in this little uh, taxi-like uh, vehicle, and we go one of these roads where at any moment you can go tumbling down the side of the cliff, and we, we, we come to this place, and it turns out that it was a deserted monastery. And uh, so this cave has, has been empty for some years, and you can go there and sit. But unbeknownst to him, it had recently been, the monastery was being reestablished, and some fool had written it up in a guidebook. 
So here were all these people. And he was surprised by this. Uh, but he, we marched right on through. And we go into the, we, it's a long cave. We go to the first part, and here's, here's a teacher sitting on a rock chanting, and these people are chanting. We didn't hear it until we got to that part. Then you go around this other part, and uh, you can't hear the chanting anymore. And it's totally dark, and he takes my hand, and he's moving me through the dark. And of course, I'm loving this, right? Here's this image of the teacher taking your hand. And then I sort of bump into something, and I think, oh, I'm, I've got to watch out. I'm hitting the side of the wall. And then I realize, no, it's a person sitting there. <laughs> and so here are these people sitting in the dark in this cave. And when you go a little further around, there's a candle and there's an altar. And so my teacher hops up on the altar because he, he's a senior Swami, right? So that's where he belongs. And he points to me to sit right there. So we're sitting there a while. And, so, and you know, these aren't the people sitting there are not necessarily coming from the pain, sort of the stillness that we know here. So some people start to talk, and he goes, silence, you know, and everybody gets really still. So I'm, I'm, this is, I envisioned us being alone, but okay, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> and then uh, all of these people get up, and they start coming up there, and they're touching his feet and all of this. Not pleased with this, as you would imagine, because how can we be meditating if there's all this movement? So then they leave, and then we're sitting there a while longer. And then I hear him start to move. And he's moving around and all this. And there's this one little candle you can barely see. I open my eyes to see what's going on. And he stands up and uh, uh, is clearly getting ready to leave. And I start to get up to leave too, because I think we're leaving. He holds his hand out and says, that I'm to sit there. But he doesn't say for how long, right? <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and I can sit for a long time. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there on this rock. And all these, now he's not there, so all these people come in, and they're bumping me, and they're talking and all this. <laughs> but he didn't say how long to sit there. So I'm sitting there. And I, 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 what I figure is that at some point, I won't stand it anymore, so I'll move. So he'll either come back, and get me, or I'll say, enough of this, and I'll move. And he did not come back, so I finally got up. And so I go outside, and he gives me a little red tin. And he says, put this, I had a little backpack, and he says, put this in your backpack, and whatever you do, don't open it. So it's one of those sliding tins like you would get mints in or something. He says, whatever you do, don't open this. I'm actually the kind of student that you can say that to and I'll obey you. <laughs> and, but, you know, the typical Westerner, right, what's in that tin? So I put it in my backpack. And then he says, well, go down to the Ganga, because we were right on the Ganga. Go down and sit in the Ganga for a while. So I go down. Again, he doesn't say how long. So I go and I sit there in the Ganga for a while. And I, again, there are these people talking. I'm sitting listening to this one teacher talk about... Uh, Pantajali, the, his yoga suttas, who doesn't at all know what he's talking about. And so I'm sitting there having to listen to this nonsense. But again, he didn't say for how long, so I sit there till, okay, I can't stand it anymore, I'm ready to leave. And I come back and he goes, why did you stay so long? <laughs> so then he says, come on. And so then we go up river and we get in this boat. Then there's this boatman sitting there with paddles. And we get in this boat and we sit out in the middle for a while. And then he says to the boatman, let's go to the other shore. So we're on one side of the Ganga, we go to the other. So this guy rows us over there. Then we walk all the way down this beach, and we're sitting there for a while. And then he, then he uh, gives a little lecture for a while. So 
which is really good because I'm always trying to get him to give these lectures so I can learn because that's one of the ways I learn. And then he says, so do you still have that 10? And I said, yes. So he says, well, give it to me. So he, uh, I give it to him and he very carefully slides back the top of it and turns it over and out drops this scorpion. And it is all puffed up and its tail is up, it is really ready to strike. Had I opened that tin, <laughs> and I, we were in the middle of nowhere, so this would not have been a very happy experience. And so um, he, he, says, he, says, he, he says, now see how it's upset, and see how it's ready to strike. And he says, but now it'll find its home, and it'll be okay. And I, and I say, but I don't want it to be down here where there's no rocks or anything. So indulging me, he scoops it back into the tin, which I could never have done. And he, by the way, is 74 years old and more agile than I. And so he gets it back in this tin, and we take it to these rocks, and I let it out. And he says, now watch it. And sure enough, it completely calmed down. He says, you could put your hand right next to it now, and it wouldn't bite you because it's calmed down. It's, it home, it's home. It feels safe. So then we we go back, nothing more said. Then two days later, I'm sitting there with him, and we're sitting there, and he goes, remember that scorpion? I said, sure. He said, that scorpion is like your mind, your ego mind. When it's not at home, it's really dangerous. It needs to go to the further shore to find its home but it can't get there on its own. Where he found the scorpion was he was sitting there in the dark with that one little candle, and he felt or saw it. And there happened to be that little red tin there. He scooped it up in the dark and put it in that thing. He knew how to take care of the scorpion. He didn't harm it. And, and in the same way, we learn to take care of our ego mind without harming it. We get it to a safe place where it will not cause harm to us or another. This is the value of the practice. This is why we practice to awaken in the body. In awakening into the body, we can attend, we can bring mindfulness to this moment. We can carry this moment to the further shore, just as the Buddha said. This is the aspiration. It's the possibility. Again, in our Western minds, we tend to grab hold of like getting there to the shore. But sometimes, you know, we have to get into the container of the tin. Sometimes we have to be dependent on the teacher. We have to be dependent on the practice. We have to go sit by the ocean where we can hear the possibility, but we're all caught. And then we have to go in a boat and sit around in the middle of the boat going nowhere. And then finally we get out. And maybe it's not the right place yet, but we've found some freedom. And then we go through it all again. And then we find our place. It's, it's a, a, a very moving image to me of this possibility that we can treat ourselves in just this way. One doesn't touch a scorpion lightly, but there is no reason to disown it, to feel aversion towards it, to condemn it, but rather 
to treat it with mindfulness and let it find its own place. And then it, as part of life, blossoms. There's nothing in you that is other than that. Nothing. Everything in you, in its time and place, blossoms. It's part of the whole. It's part of harmony. It's part of life. It is that when we get caught in what are called the hindrances, when we get caught in the turmoil of our stories, of the unfortunate things that have happened to us, of our dreams that we're so anxious about achieving, all of the goals, and dealing with our disappointments, dealing with the physical difficulties, this is when we become scorpions. We don't know. It comes from ignorance, not from the true nature of our heart. The true nature of our heart is calm, relaxed, open. It's part of everything else. There's no difference. This simple body, as Deborah said the first night, this phantom long body, we can find it all. The Buddha was asked, where is the end of the world? Where is the end of the world of loka? In this phantom long body, the end of the world is the end of the world of 10,000 things that we get caught in greed, hatred, and delusions. It's here now. So let's sit for a moment. Finding the elephant in the room, acknowledging the elephant in the room, adoring the elephant in the room, opening to the body in just this moment. Thank you for your kind attention. It's time for walking and we'll start sitting again at nine o'clock and we've got a bell ringer for the hand up. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.